are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. It's January 2020 and we started the Gospel of Mark January 2019, so we've been in Mark for a year. It's quite amazing. We've been out of Mark the last four weeks, and so coming back to Mark, at least for me, this past week's been like coming back to a good friend. Though you've left him aside for a bit, you just pick up your conversation right where you left off, and, and this book has been a great blessing to us the last year. Looking forward to what the Word is going to do with us coming forward. Um, This morning, our sermon text is Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17, all the way through verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, I would exhort you, encourage you to grab one. You can find Mark chapter 10 on page 846. Mark chapter 10 starting in verse 17. Give your attention to the word of God. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do rejoice in the gospel. We rejoice in your beloved Son. We rejoice in his deeds, in his words. There is no one like Christ. And Father, this morning we confess to you our situation. We are a people 
who have great needs. We need you to work in our hearts. We need you to disturb us. We need you to kill us in the gospel and make us alive in the gospel yet again. We need to put off that which is sin and put on that which is righteousness. And we own the words that Jesus speaks. With man it is impossible. We own our deficiencies this morning. But we hope in you, O God. You are the powerful God. You are the God of the gospel. And so we pray, won't you work in our hearts this morning? Won't you cast down idols this morning? Won't you do what we can't do? Father, be our help this morning and be pleased to work among us through your spirit as the word is preached. We pray this in your son's good name. Amen. So we've been out of the Gospel of Mark for a bit, four weeks, and so it's helpful if we can just get our bearings about the story, what's going on. And so we can go all the way back to Mark chapter 1. And so John's arrested, the forerunner of Jesus, and then Jesus enters into Galilee and he begins his ministry. And he starts a preaching ministry and he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And when we think about these words, these are the most disturbing words ever uttered in human history. And while these words we hear from Jesus' mouth might seem opaque or obtuse to us, Jesus in this this short pronouncement tells all that will hear that God and that the power of his reign has, has finally drawn near. What Jesus is saying in this short pronouncement is that the great God described in the Old Testament, the God of power, the God of salvation, the God of justice, is now reasserting his claim over all things, absolutely everything, in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus preached, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, he he signals that a real disruptive change is afoot in his ministry. And And we see this disruption in vivid detail as we travel throughout the Gospel of Mark, as Mark places story after story after story in front of us. As we read of the many exorcism accounts recorded in Mark's Gospel, we see that the kingdom of darkness has been radically disturbed with the coming of Jesus. We find the unclean spirits cowering before Jesus. They say, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? We find Satan's powerful forces begging for mercy. 5,000 demons prostrate before Jesus saying, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Jesus himself pronounces the good news. He has come to disrupt. He says, I've come to bind Satan and plunder his house. And as we read of the many healing stories littered across Mark's gospel, we find that the reign of death has been radically disturbed by the coming of Jesus. Every healing story, whether that's the story of the leper or the woman with the flow of blood or even Jairus' dead daughter, point to a great fact. A real disruption has taken place. Resurrection life has appeared with Christ Jesus. Death is disturbed. And as we read of the many troubled souls that Jesus ministers to, we we find that the reign of, of sin has been radically disturbed with Jesus. Those precious words that Jesus spoke to the paralytic back as we began the story reveal the significance of Jesus' ministry. That man is lowered down in the presence of Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, Son, 
Your sins are forgiven. And then we find Jesus dining and welcoming tax collectors and sinners. He's welcoming home the defiled and he's forgiving the guilty. And Jesus announces in his ministry that that sin is disturbed because of him. He stands up in the presence of all and he announces, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus preaches. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And we see it, demons, diseases, death, sin are all radically disturbed with his coming. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is what the gospel is all about. But we also have to understand that this gospel radically disturbs humanity, us. The good news of the gospel, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, comes, is accompanied with a, a personal address to each one of us. Jesus turns to us after pronouncing the good news and says this, You must repent and believe in the gospel. And we see the disturbing effects of the gospel upon humanity. Jesus came to his disciples and summoned them personally saying, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And after Jesus summons them in the gospel, what do we find? Well, we find the disruptive effects of the gospel. We find fishing boats left unattended. We find nets needing mending. We, we see fathers left alone with their servants. We see lucrative tax booths empty, homes and families lacking fathers and brothers and sons. There is the effect of the gospel. And as these 12 men traveling with Jesus, as they, as they go with Jesus, they, they learn what it means to believe and to repent. And as these men travel with Jesus, the gospel exerts its, its disruptive force upon them. The knowledge of Jesus that they encounter makes them shudder with confusion and amazement, blasting away every preconceived category that exists in their minds. Jesus stops the storm and the disciples say this, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him while they shudder? And they are met freshly with advance of the gospel as they travel with Jesus. No part of their lives are exempt from Jesus' lordship. He lays claim to absolutely everything. He preaches to his disciples again and again and again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And as they travel with Jesus, these men are disturbed because they're reminded of their own ineptitude and their many deficiencies. Jesus looks into their heart again and again and again. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are your hearts so hard? So we can clearly see that the nature of the gospel is that it's disruptive. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to mean that you're someone who has been disrupted by the gospel. What we find in the the gospel story is that the Lord Jesus will not let the matters of faith and repentance be domesticated or trivialized. And when we come to chapter 10 and the story of this rich man, we meet again another testimony to the disruptive nature of the gospel. What we will find in the story is that the the customs and the values of this man are, are graciously overthrown as Jesus applies the gospel to him. But as we look at Mark chapter 10, we have to be very careful. 
Because as we enter into this story, this text is not just a a testimony of past history. It is a lively text. It is a powerful text. And as we pick up this story, as we handle it, as we engage it, as we enter into it, we can expect that the gospel will exert its disruptive force upon us. Jesus will come to us as he often does and expose us for who we are when he preaches to us. He will cast down our idols. And then as he always does, He will turn to us and summon us to himself. That's what we can expect this morning in this story. So as we consider our text this morning, we can can break it up into three sections. In the first section, we're going to consider the the disruptive command of the gospel. And in the second section, we're going to consider the, the deficiency of this man that we meet. Then third, we need to consider the power of God. So we can begin this morning by looking at the disruptive command of the gospel. We start in verse 17. So as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus is on a journey. He's making his way to Jerusalem, ultimately to the cross. And here's another interruption. Here's another sideline story. And while Mark doesn't give us a a detailed background check on this man who comes to Jesus, we don't know where he came from. We don't know his occupation. We don't even know this man's name. He does bring to our attention this man's demeanor and the pointed question he asks Jesus. And if we pay attention to the details that Mark gives us, we learn a lot about this man. So the first thing that we notice about this man is that this man ran up to Jesus. Clearly, we can see that this man needed to get to Jesus before he left that region. This man was desperate to get to him. And not only did this man run up to Jesus, hurrying to find Jesus, but we find that he knelt down before Jesus when he found him. Just as a leper knelt before Jesus and implored him for healing, this man comes to Jesus in great need. That's what you do when you kneel before someone. And so we see the demeanor of this man, but now we need to, now we need to hear the words that he addresses Jesus with. So after running to Jesus, kneeling down before Jesus, he begins to speak and he says this, Good teacher. So we're good students of Mark's gospel. We know that Jesus has been called teacher before. His disciples have called him, him teacher. Teacher, we are, are perishing. And the Pharisees and the scribes at times called Jesus teacher. But this man recognizes that there's something different about this Jesus. Jesus is not an ordinary teacher. He's different from all the other teachers that he has heard in the land of Israel. He stands in a class of his own. The man on his knee says, good teacher. Now, unlike the many stories we have read, This man doesn't come to Jesus for healing. He doesn't come to Jesus because he needs a demon cast out of his son or daughter or cousin. Rather, he comes to Jesus because he has heard Jesus is preaching. Jesus has been preaching throughout his ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And this man has recognized the importance of Jesus' announcement. He's recognized that, that God's reign has drawn near, that the time for salvation, judgment, mercy, and justice has arrived. And this man desperately wants to know how he can have a, a share in this eternal kingdom. And so he speaks to Jesus with earnestness, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus preaches, the time is fulfilled, and this man says, how can I get in on this? I want to. 
So we have all of these details before us, and we just need to collect them together and take a step back and, and consider this man for who he is as Mark presents him to us. So Mark's given us vital information about this man. What can we say about this man? Well, this man is earnest for Jesus. Even more, this man has great reverence for Jesus. He kneels before him and he says, good teacher. Even more, this man is is concerned with the preaching of Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He has heard Jesus' words and he's, he's concerned about them. And it seems as we consider this man, we have, we have found an ideal candidate for discipleship. Out of all the characters we've met so far in Mark's gospel, this man seems like he is primed to follow Jesus. He's on the cusp of discipleship. Or is he? That's the question, or is he? And this is the matter that the Lord Jesus sets himself to. Jesus desires that this man who comes to him and kneels before him would truly know what he must do so that he can enter the kingdom of God and have life eternal. He desires ultimately that this man would operate with true and genuine faith and repentance. And so what does Jesus do? Well, if you're accustomed with Jesus, Jesus often begins prodding around. And this is what he does in verses 18 and 19. He begins prodding around with this man. He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And it's clear that the Lord Jesus does not operate the same way that we operate. Imagine yourself as a teacher. Someone runs up to you and pays you a great compliment. Good teacher. Oh, we'd be enamored. We might blush. We'd say, thank you, you're welcome. What can, I, what can I do for you? Rather, what does Jesus do? He's not impressed with all of this. He gives this man a mild rebuke for calling him good. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And in short, Jesus is saying to this man, do you really understand the meaning of that word, good? Do you really understand what it means for God to be good and God alone? And has that knowledge seeped into every nook and cranny of your life? But the great question of the man remains unanswered. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus answers this man's question in verse 19. He, he sets before this man a large portion of the Ten Commandments. He says to the man, do not murder Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. This is what God demands of you. So here's Jesus. Places the the Ten Commandments, a big part of them, before this man. And what does this man do? Well, he's not enthused about Jesus' answer. He's sitting here thinking, these are the ABCs of life in Israel. And so he responds in verse 20, probably a bit perplexed, saying to Jesus, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. These are the ABCs of my life. I know them. You're not telling me anything new. We have to carefully weigh the words of these men. When when this man says, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth, he doesn't mean that he was sinless or morally perfect. Rather, he's simply telling Jesus that from the age of 12, he's carefully devoted himself to the law of God. And when and if he sinned, he he would find forgiveness through the temple sacrifice like any other obedient Jew in the Old Testament. But we can still see that this man is is operating in the dark. He's still confused by Jesus' words. He's not getting what Jesus is driving at. 
And so Jesus, out of his love, brings clarity and he brings specific application of the gospel to this man's life, right where it hits him. And so Mark records these specific words in verse 21. He records, and Jesus looking at him. You get this idea of Jesus assessing this man, taking him in, loved him. This is the only person in the Gospel of Mark that, that Mark tells us that Jesus loved and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. As we consider Jesus' words, they're stunning. Jesus does not set aside the law of God here. Rather, he brings the law of God with force upon this man. Jesus says to him, if you really love your neighbor, if you really prize God above all, you must sell all of your belongings and give them to the poor. You must love your neighbor as yourself, supremely so. Even more what Jesus does is he brings the law of God to its perfect completion. Jesus says... In essence, if you really are a covenant keeper, if you really are a a lover of God, if you really are obedient to the law of keeping it, what will you do? Well, you will follow me. You will give to me your supreme allegiance. In essence, what Jesus is doing is he's taking this man to the first commandment and interpreting it Christologically. You will have no other gods before me, says the first commandment. And what Jesus says, what that actually means to keep the first commandment is to follow me. Give me your supreme allegiance. Jesus is saying, if you want to keep the law, you've got to follow me. So here we see the matter very clearly. If this man, desiring eternal life, wants to enter the kingdom of God and obtain eternal life, he must let go of all that he treasures and give Jesus Christ his supreme allegiance. And we see here that the word of the gospel comes with all of its disturbing force upon this man. Everything that this man's heart holds dear, all that he hopes in, and all that he latches onto for security and comfort, it must be radically relinquished. There's only to be one object set before this man day by day by day, and it must be Christ, and it must be Christ alone. This man cannot have his riches and Christ. He cannot have one cent of his riches and have Christ Jesus. What we see is that the Lord Jesus Christ, he's playing for keeps with this man. He's not content with half measures. Give away some of your money and follow me. He doesn't come to this man and offer him a trial period. Why don't you follow me for about a month and see if you like my discipleship regimen and then we can make some decisions about your money. Now he demands the entirety of this man for himself and for the gospel, and he will have nothing less than that. And as we think about it, this is the stark call that we are met with this morning as Jesus preaches to us. And we can and we should ask with this man that came to Jesus who knelt before him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When we ask this question in earnestness, we find the same disturbing words pressing in on us. Jesus calls to us. He says, relinquish all that you cherish. Topple over every idol that sits in your heart. Forsake every source of refuge and follow me and follow me alone. Supreme allegiance is the ticket. Now we have to understand that the demand of the gospel came to this man in Mark chapter 10, personalized. You see it in the text. Jesus looks at the man. He he loves the man. He sees what's going on in the man's heart. And then he addresses him. Sell. Follow. 
And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus continues this personalized work. What Jesus did for that man in Mark chapter 10 is a ministry that Jesus still continues today. He still looks at us. He assesses us, loves us. And he gives us a personalized command. He's looking at the idols of our hearts and he diagnoses us. Your idol might be wealth. And Jesus' word comes to you and says, sell, follow. Or your idol might be family this morning. You you prize family above all, finding comfort and refuge there. And Jesus has a personalized word. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You might have an idol that is, is lust. You, you crave sexual appetite. And, and Jesus comes with his word. He personalizes his message for those who, who idolize lust. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, we'll tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Or perhaps your idol is life itself. Jesus has a personalized word. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus has a word for every idol, and he addresses us afresh every time the Gospel is preached. He's pointing at our hearts, saying, this is where you're going wrong. You must forsake it and give me your allegiance. So as we consider the text, we we see the conditions of entrance into the kingdom very clearly. If we are to enter the kingdom of God... We must let go of all and give Jesus Christ supreme allegiance. That's the only way. So as we consider the the conditions of the kingdom this morning, these are are hard words. There's no getting around them. It's demanding. It's disturbing. And it will change absolutely everything about you. This is what faith and repentance are all about to the maximum. To come to any other conclusion as we think about faith and repentance is not to understand the gospel. It's not to understand Jesus. But as we see, as we look back into our text, this this word that Jesus preaches to this man is, is too hard for him. Though Jesus loved this man, though Jesus came to him and graciously exposed his idols, though Jesus offered him eternal life and treasures in heaven, this man would not obey the call of the gospel. We read these discouraging words in verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. There's great tragedy here, and the tragedy cannot be overstated. Simply put, as we look at this man, he loved his riches more than he loved Christ Jesus. He he valued his many lands, more precious than life in the kingdom of God. For this man, the call of Jesus was just too costly. We don't know what was going on in this man's heart or mind, but surely he was asking all sorts of questions as Jesus' word fell upon him. Who would give up their their net worth to follow Jesus? Who would sell off their, their vast and many lands to follow Christ? Who would set aside all of their prestige to wallow in poverty and follow Jesus to own this Christ? Here Mark is setting before us the deficiency of this man so plainly. This man cannot let go of his idols because he was enslaved to them. He cannot agree with the terms of the gospel, faith and repentance, because he could not see. He could not recognize the unsearchable riches of Christ Jesus himself. He could not sell all that he had and follow Jesus. Why? Because he loved his many possessions. He loved them. 
That is where his heart was. So here is this man. He, he ran to Jesus. He knelt down before Jesus. He cries out to Jesus, what must I do? Jesus tells him, sell, follow. And this man walks away. What the Lord Jesus does next is he uses this whole situation as an opportunity to teach his disciples about the radical deficiency of man. So Jesus turns his attention after looking at the man. Now he looks at his disciples in the face and he addresses them in verse 23. He says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus doubles down on his logic with his disciples in the next two verses, verses 24 and 25, and and Jesus amplifies. He says, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is so provocative here. So Jesus stops this whole scene and he's teaching his disciples and he's saying, men, think about a camel. A camel was the the largest animal in the Middle East, often weighing more than a thousand pounds. And and Jesus says, think about this camel, it's large. Now think about the smallest hole you can imagine, the eye of a needle. Now try to imagine that, that camel making its way through the eye of the needle. And the point here is simple, it's ridiculous. It's impossible for a camel weighing more than a thousand pounds to get through the eye of a needle. It's not going to happen. There is no cramming or pushing. There is no amount of effort. There is no special technique or technology to get that big camel through that small little hole. Jesus is making an argument here. Just as it is impossible for that camel to get through that hole, it is impossible for this man clinging to his riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen. There is no cramming or pushing. There is no amount of effort. There is no technique or technology that's going to get this man in. What Jesus demands of this man, this man cannot do. Even more, what Jesus demands of this man in faith and repentance, he will not do. We have to press on what Jesus says here. Because if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we will recognize that Jesus' words are not just for the rich man. Jesus is not just pointing his finger at the rich man and making a lesson out of him. He's also pointing his fingers at the disciples and at the rest of us. We have to take notice of the disciples' reaction to Jesus' logic. Verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. Verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? The disciples' response in these, these two verses are so important for us to understand. Here was a man, this, this man who came to Jesus, who knelt down before him. He was an ideal candidate for discipleship. This man had his life together. He was obedient to the law of God. He had kept it from his youth. Even this more, this man was marked out by the favor and love of God. Jews in the first century often understood wealth as an indicator of God's blessing and love. If you were a rich man, Jews will often understand that you were a blessed man of God, some kind of pseudo-prosperity gospel at work. And here Jesus says to this ideal candidate, he's got everything going for him. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the sharp logic of Jesus cuts to the disciples' bones. These are sharp men, they're, they're reasoning here. 
If this obedient man, if this supposedly blessed man and loved man, if this well-respected man cannot enter the kingdom of God, what hope is there for the rest of us? Essentially what these disciples are doing is they're taking the resume of the rich man, placing it down and taking their own resumes and comparing them. This man's resume outstrips my resume in every single way. He is far superior to me. And he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What hope is there for the rest of us? And so these men are actually crying out in despair. They say, then who can be saved? If this guy can't get in, there's no hope for the rest of us, Shmos. We see here that the disciples understood that Jesus' word did not apply only to the rich man. It applied to them. And as they considered the demands of the gospel that Jesus placed before them, they were faced afresh with their own deficiency. Just as the camel is not going through the eye of the needle, they are not entering the kingdom of God by themselves. No matter how much they cram or push, no matter the technology or technique that they use, they understood that there is no way for them to gain the kingdom of God themselves. And we too are faced with our own radical deficiency in this text because Jesus addresses us as well. He, he looks at us in the eye and he says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And if we wrestle with Jesus' words, if we sit with them long enough, they will cut us to the bone as well. Because what Jesus is saying is, is push as hard as you can. Cram with all of your power. Borrow the best techniques and technologies that you can find. Exert all of your moral willpower. Gather up all of your righteousness. You will not enter into the kingdom of God. That which is demanded of you in the gospel, faith, and repentance, you cannot meet in and of yourselves. You won't do it. You cannot do it. The disciples get it. They lead us. They teach us how to despair. They say, then who can be saved? But the good news is that's not the end of our text. The disciples are despairing and Jesus speaks into their despair. We find verse 27. Jesus says, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In verse 27, Jesus brings us to the heart of discipleship. When we think about discipleship, discipleship at the end of the day is not a a moral renovation project where Jesus comes alongside of us and, and sees something in us and tries to help us get our act together. Nor is discipleship like a physical fitness program where Jesus comes alongside us as our trainer and he strengthens us and empowers us to do great things. That's what's not taking place here. Rather, discipleship at its heart is an encounter with the gospel of God. It is an encounter with the inbreaking power of God, providing and working what no man could ever do or dream of doing. That's what Jesus is preaching. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And in this verse, verse 27, we see the strategy of Jesus' ministry. What is he doing? Well, he aims to bring his disciples to the end of themselves so that they might only look to God. We can extrapolate what Jesus is saying here. What is he saying to us? He's saying this. If you are to enter the kingdom of God, it will be by my God's power and his power alone. If you are to have a, a saving interest in my ministry, it will be by my God's power and my God's power alone. If you will see my God's glory and beauty someday, it will be by my God's power and God's power alone. If you were to have a a share in resurrection life someday, the fullness of life in the kingdom of God, 
It will be by my God's power and my God's power alone. And this is the silver thread running throughout the entirety of Mark's Gospel. We can just recall the last story that we worked through. The disciples are struggling with with pride and prestige. And what does Jesus preach to them? Well, he looks at them and says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus is telling us two facts. Well, who are you? Well, you must understand that you must become a child, that you have need, radical need. And you also must understand a precious second fact, that the only way to get into the kingdom of God is for God to give it to you. You must receive it. God must give it. And this was the same word that Jesus announced to the self-righteous Pharisees. Jesus preached to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus is saying is, if you want to share in the blessings of the kingdom of God, the, the riches of that which is the forgiveness of sins, who is this for? It's for sinners. Those who have nothing to stand on, nothing to cling to, but God's mercy and God's mercy alone. And this is the fact that's ultimately revealed as Jesus goes outside of Jerusalem and is strung up on a cross, nailed there. It preaches this. We are radically deficient and only the power of God can save. What Jesus is doing in verse 27, he's teaching that there's only one way to live the Christian life. He's saying as Christians, we must be a people deeply acquainted with despair. Jesus' words ought to be on our foreheads. With man, it is impossible. That ought to be the, the, the motto of our lives. We are to be in constant despair of ourselves, in despair of our own resolve, our own strength, our own abilities, our own achievements, even the moral quality of our lives, to despair of all of it. We recognize none of these things will gain me the kingdom of God. We have to understand, what does it mean to grow up in faith? What does it mean to mature in faith? Well, it means to, it means to burrow down. The Christian who is mature is the Christian who is acquainted with Jesus' words, who, who knows despair so well, who says, in all things, with man it is impossible. But at the same time as we despair, we are profoundly a hopeful people. Why? Because God has drawn near to us in the gospel and with him all things are possible. Here's the glorious fact that entrance into the kingdom of God relies not upon us. We are just like that large camel. As Nathan confronted David and said, you are that man, Jesus confronts us and says, you are that camel. Rather, we, we solely rely upon the sovereign grace of God. We forsake ourselves and entrust ourselves to God's grace. We rely upon God to give us the kingdom. We rely upon God to cleanse our sinful hearts. We rely upon God to regenerate us and give us faith. We rely upon God to qualify us for the heavenly inheritance. We rely upon God to safely deliver us from every temptation and snare and trouble. This is what Jesus is preaching to us. With man it is impossible, but not with God. Why? For all things are possible with God. And so as we consider the gospel this morning, we must say, and we can truly say, that the gospel of Jesus is disturbing. 
The gospel of Jesus has a destructive presence. For in the wake of the gospel, we find the reign of Satan demolished. We find the power of sin in shambles. We find death defeated. And we have seen the disturbing presence of the gospel in this very text. As it drew near to that rich man, as Jesus preached to this rich man, his gospel caused him sorrow and anguish. As Jesus turned and addressed his disciples with the logic of the gospel, it caused them panic and distress. They said, then who can be saved? And the gospel does the same thing with us. It brings us to a place of despair. The gospel demolishes us and kills us. It preaches in our ears. With man, it is impossible. And it drives this point home with power. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to feel this and own this. But at the same time, we have to understand that the gospel provides a gracious disturbance. Not only does God kill us in the gospel, but he makes us alive in the gospel. Jesus does not only demolish and destroy all that is wrong, but he holds out true life, abundant life. He does not just call us to renounce and sell, but he calls us to gain, eternal gain. And we see this in the text. Not only did the Lord Jesus call this man to sell, but he called this man to gain. He said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And what? And you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is disturbing him with promise and pleasure, pointing him ahead to the great coming of the kingdom of God. And Jesus holds out this great treasure to us as well. Jesus is disturbing us with the good news of the gospel. There is something coming that is greater than we can imagine. Eternal life in the kingdom of God. Treasure in heaven. Jesus' words are making us alive as well. Jesus preaches the gracious, disturbing words of the gospel. He says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children's or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And here's the clincher. And in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is doing a work of grace and he's calling us ahead to treasure so here's the gospel. Jesus addresses us. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And the gospel comes to us personally. Each time the gospel is preached, Jesus sends to us afresh. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. So the question is, will we repent and believe once again? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for the gospel. We are thankful that you are a God who demolishes idols, who casts away sin, who destroys the the power of the kingdom of darkness. We are so thankful that you are a God who builds in the gospel, establishing a kingdom of righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we pray, won't you demolish us? And won't you build us up in the gospel? Tear down our idols, we pray, and lead us into life everlasting. Use your word now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.